Welcome to Impact AI, the podcast for startups who want to create a better future through the use of machine learning. I'm your host, Heather Couture. Today I'm joined by guest Eric Adamson, CEO of Tortuga AgTech, to talk about smarter farming using AI. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Heather. Eric, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Tortuga? Sure. Uh, you go way back, both my father's and mother's parents uh, and, and my family on both sides were agriculturalists. And this is not uncommon. You know, it used to be that 50% of all humans worked pretty much every day on growing food. Uh, in my particular uh, family, my father's uh, father was a farmer of cattle and sort of other crops in northern Ontario. And my mother's family was in Australia doing um, homesteading in Western Australia, sort of as it was developed <laughs> uh, from nothing. And uh, I didn't really get right into agriculture myself. I uh, grew up in the Silicon Valley. I was around you know, the first big internet boom and the whole tech craze of the 90s. Uh, went to college and started it, it to work actually in energy, uh, in electric power, natural gas, uh, some even in mining. These interests were of huge, or these industries were of huge interest in mine because they are very environmentally intensive, and that's sort of what I what I generally care about the most in my life is how can we have our human systems better interact with the ecosystem around us and on upon which all life depends. Uh, and energy is a very obvious interface with that. But over time, there's this huge. Some people may have heard of the nexus between energy, water, and food. And just by being in the energy industry, I learned a lot about agriculture and I started realizing this is what I actually cared about. And then I started reconnecting with my family roots. Um, and so for the last uh, around over 10 years now, I've been focused exclusively on agriculture uh, and trying to figure out what um, technological or knowledge based ways do we have to improve the system that we've built. The system has been super successful. Uh, in going from, you know, a billion humans to almost 8 billion humans on the planet. But the system that we built to get there is very brittle, is very unsustainable, uh, has a lot of risks, and also has a lot of damage that we didn't plan. Uh, what can we do to try to shift our food system uh, in small ways and large towards more sustainability? So that's kind of my, my quick, in a nutshell, journey uh, to uh, working in agriculture and in, in robotics. Okay. So what does Tortuga do and why is this important for farming and for a healthier society? Yeah, Tortuga, it's our mission, as you stated, you know, to build a healthier society and a smarter, a thriving planet through smarter farming. Uh, we build robots that first and foremost harvest fruit. So starting with strawberries and table grapes and soon other kind of fruiting crops, uh, we are building robots that pick uh, that fruit. Uh, the reason that we start there is because picking is uh, a very tangible task. It is in very high demand. There's not enough people in the world who want to do this job. Uh, farmers, pretty much every region we've ever visited or talked to, have a problem finding enough people to do the picking job. And it tends to be the most important and largest uh, cost for a farmer. Um, some crops, it can be up to 75% of the total cost of your food. Uh, just the harvest process or things around the harvest process. Um, in strawberries, it can be 40 to 50% of the whole cost. Uh, and so if you can do that job with a robot, uh, you can provide a lot of direct tangible value. Once you're doing that job with a robot, you think about identifying each individual piece of fruit or whether it's ready to be picked or not. To do that, you need to do a lot of things that can actually be very valuable for the grower. Information about their grow that they didn't have before. 
Uh, you can do other tasks that are right next to the crop because you're already there to pick. Um, you can start to do a lot more by changing this sort of core task from a human-driven task to a robot-driven task. And we believe that this will fundamentally shift how uh, a farming business is operated and therefore will help to shift how the entire supply chain works. And that will reduce the environmental impact of, of the industry, improve quality, uh, basically improve everybody's experience all up and down the chain. So that's a, at a very high level what we're doing. And how does machine learning work with this? What role does it play with your robotics? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly central. Uh, I think that many people know of robots, uh, and the robots have been around for a long time doing very um, mechanical, repeatable tasks. But autonomous robots, robots that make decisions and judgment calls and uh, behave in ways that were not pre-planned, uh, really require to understand their surroundings uh, all the time. And, and that fundamentally comes down to imaging and, and machine learning. And um, we used no fewer than 10 uh, sort of machine learning models in general, no fewer than eight at any given time running on the edge on the robot to decide, you know, where are the berries? Which ones should we be picking? How should we be picking them? Uh, where is the, you know, where are the other environmental features around us? How do we drive? How do we navigate? In that sense, we use a lot of the same or similar approaches to an autonomous driving uh, system. Uh, we have machine learning to estimate fruit qualities. We have machine learning to estimate uh, basically a lot of other things on the robot. And then we also have offline machine learning uh, to try to provide value to the grower and things like forecasting, uh, where we collect a bunch of data while we're picking and then we actually have better information than anyone's ever had. And how do we then use that to make more value for the farm? So machine learning is both very central to our on the edge, you know, operations as well as uh, happening in the background. Are all of the models you're working with based on imagery or are some based on other modalities of data? They are uh, predominantly image based, but we do have some machine learning models uh, to parse through, for example, robot logs and try to find sort of systemic issues. Uh, we've got some other approaches, but uh, yeah, I would say most of the models that we run are uh, image based machine learning. Okay, so these are all images captured by the robots themselves, and you know maybe part of their logic is to figure out what things to image in order to get the the image data in order to make their decisions. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a good a good summary. Okay. How do you ensure that the uh, technology you're developing will meet growers' needs? Well, that is the main question <laughs> that has been at the center of our entire. Uh, startup journey. I think um, in any deep technology startup, such as one that relies on machine learning, um, it is very, very critical. We believe it is very, very critical to constantly learn from your customer. Um, so ever since literally the first couple months of, of, of Tortuga's founding, we've sought out growers to learn from, to share what we've developed and get feedback on. Uh, we never assume that what we're doing is exactly what they want. We're kind of constantly testing assumptions and asking questions. And I still feel that six, six and a half years in, every conversation I have with a grower, I learn something. Um, so that's kind of a philosophy behind what we do. And then in terms of machine learning specifically, it's been a very collaborative effort. You know, we, we basically had to learn from our customers what is a ripe berry? What is a problem berry? Give us all of the specs from all of the supermarkets that say what a good berry or a bad berry is. And then we had to translate that into you know, labeling instructions that 
at first we did or some of our significant others or friends and family were helping us to label <laughs> images in the early days and now we've graduated to using a third party uh, service but um, you know figuring out that pipeline from someone else's knowledge to the robot knows it is really critical i mean that's not not news to anybody listening to this podcast but uh, it's constant feedback and constant communication with the customer to make sure we're doing what they want i hear that from a, a lot of different companies in, in different fields it's what the end user needs and it's not always obvious to the person implementing the technology they need to have those conversations sometimes even see how the technology is being used by that end user in order to get the feedback they need to make the technology that most helpful it can be rather than just solving some sort of arbitrary problem. Exactly. I think that's been probably the main failure mode of a lot of robotics startups, I'll say. Um, and a lot of those robotics startups are using machine learning. Um, you know, if you build technology because the technology is cool uh, or because you can, uh, you are much more likely to fail than if you start with the customer problem and then figure out what kind of technology might help to solve that problem. And uh, that, that customer back or problem back mindset I'm sure is at the heart of most successful machine learning startups, uh, certainly robotic startups. Mm -hmm. Machine learning models are, are most effective when they're developed with an understanding of the underlying data. How do your machine learning developers collaborate with experts in other fields? Yeah, great question. I think we touched on it a little bit uh, just in the last question, but uh, we learn from well, within the company, there's experts in you know software, electrical, mechanical engineering. Uh, there's experts in operations, there's experts in growing. And then our, our, our farmer customers are far and away better experts in their operations and, and actual agronomy and growing than we are. So for the machine learning team in particular, it's all about, you know, how do I learn from our customer first and foremost? And then, you know, the hardware team about the sensors that we're using and how that might impact the models that we know the most about on the machine learning team. And I say we because it's the team in our company, but I am not on this team. <laughs> I'm not the uh, the expert like the machine learning team is, but um, collaborating within the company and collaborating externally with our with our customers are the are the main ways we uh, we use sort of the expertise across disciplines. But of course, we're always, you know, our team is constantly looking around the of the world and around the, the general ML community for uh, new applications of existing models or new interesting, you know, architectures that could potentially be applied to what we're doing. We've, we've um, sort of pretty much every year uh, taken something from literature that's pretty new and tried to apply it to our problem. And most importantly, you know, applying the right tool to the to the right problem, sometimes in novel ways, is is the really hard part, and that's what we focused on a lot. So, I would say to answer your question again, for three three parts: internally with our team, externally with our customer, and then you know with the uh, with the broader industry of machine learning and the academic development as well. I imagine for most projects, this collaboration is very important, but for some more than others, it's absolutely critical. Maybe a machine learning person would miss some kind of information that's obvious to the domain expert and having that interaction and that conversation in order to find out some key information was essential to getting a model working? Yeah, I think that in particular, the decision around whether or not to pick a fruit, which is you know the core decision of, of our company's problem that we're trying to solve, it's so surprisingly nuanced 
and can be so surprisingly, as you said, you know, sort of unintuitive um, that it's been a, a multi-year conversation with uh, customers and different customers because you don't want to get locked into just one customer's belief. Um, in our particular problem, you know, not only is is there a berry, but there are many different types of berries and they have many different ripening patterns and their ripening patterns might even change based on the conditions, uh, based on the geography, based on the type of fertilizer uh, and, and sort of uh, fertility mix that's being used, um, based on the pests that are in the area, uh, based on the sunlight or the, the sort of temperature difference between night and day. So there's so many different variables that can change the answer um, that you know every season since 2017, we've been learning. Um, and that conversation, that learning doesn't happen in a vacuum. That learning happens with our machine learning engineers being in the field, being the ones who are actually um, taking data with handheld rigs. It's not even on robot. Uh, they're out there you know, installing uh, sort of hacky hardware prototypes to try to capture certain types of data that we weren't capturing before and really getting their hands physically on the problem um, and then talking to growers about it and collaborating with the growers about it. Saying, is this what you meant? You know, we're, one of the things we try to do is to fill our containers to the right weight. And we're using multiple machine learning models to help us do that. And, um, but we need to know what the right weight is and what's the, what's the bounds of error around the right weight because the current pickers doing this as humans don't do it exactly right and not perfectly. So then you have to talk to the grower. Well, we know that it's supposed to be 400 grams, but is it plus or minus 10 or plus or minus 30 grams? You know, for each berry, it's, it should be, you know, plus or minus 5% error, but what about plus or minus 7 or 10% error? And what kind of error, you know, what, what things can, uh, what things are, are uh, okay to pass through an extra berry, what things are, you know, absolutely no goes uh, to put into the pot. So there's all of these nuances and complexities that, um, I think just that, you know, what, what is a ripe berry and what is a healthy berry to put into what's on it is an incredibly complicated set of multiple decisions and judgments that a robot needs to make. Um, and that's, that's really only possible by collaborating deeply with uh, the, the subject matter expert. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, especially what you mentioned about the machine learning engineers actually getting out in the field to interact with the subject matter experts and to see and experience the different variations that their models need to handle. I certainly understand how that's very important to the success of your technology. Yeah, I would say it's one of the most critical things. I mean, many of our many of our team members' first weeks or first two weeks have been immediately flying to a farm and uh, spending time on the on the farm with the robots, learning a problem in in very very deep detail. And I would encourage anybody um, building a you know, uh, a technology based on machine learning or, or certainly robots to do the same. That's good to hear. So we talked a little bit about your data and annotation. Most of it's image-based and that mm -hmm. so you do have ways to, to annotate it. Could you maybe expand on that, on how you gather and annotate training data and what challenges you encounter in this process? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we touched on it a little bit, but it's a very iterative process. Um, the first time we go to a new crop or a new site, we'll take data, like I said, with a handheld rig, and we'll just pretend to be a robot and gather, you know, some number of images, 500, 1,000. Um, and then we have, you know, that might be literally 
directly imported to to a computer and up, up, uploaded to you know AWS, uh, for example, and then and then you know handed off to the to the labeling supplier. And that, that's like the hackiest, quickest version of getting getting data from the field. But we also have built a very robust pipeline uh, that is continuously updating data, uploading data from the field uh, in every site around the world. So uh, we sort of have a, now built a very automated process by which we collect, upload, process, and even pre-label data before we even send it off to our labeling partner um, so that we have a very efficient and effective pipeline. And that took us years to build, uh, but uh, it's exceptionally powerful for us to be able to, for example, go to a new site, um, run a couple robots or a, a small fleet of robots for a day, and then within a week have a brand new model that's been completely retrained on uh, freshly labeled data from this new place. Uh, that's very critical for us because farm environments are changing so often, you really need to be able to be reactive and continue to improve your models as as you develop. Uh, so that's that's a huge part of what we've done. And I think, you know, inherent in that, the challenges are, I mean, yeah, anytime your problem is shifting and changing, that's going to be challenging for a machine learning, uh, you know, system. Um, being able to create a pipeline that, that works really, really well for your particular use case uh, is a big challenge. We built our own. There are people who are trying to build startups that do this. Um, but in our particular weird use case, uh, we found it better to just build our own. And now we have a pretty robust pipeline. Um, and yeah, just variability in the, in, in the problem is, I think, always the biggest challenge uh, in, uh, in what we're doing and probably in a lot of, a lot of ML-driven startups. I know you mentioned a, a few different machine learning models that run on the robots. How do you measure the success of the machine learning components of your technology? Yeah, this is a, this is a fun question, too. <laughs> There's sort of the book answer, which is you know, your F1 score and your uh, precision and recall. And uh, you, you can look at the numbers and try to estimate whether a robot is, or sorry, a machine learning model in particular is, is, is better or worse than its, than its predecessor. But in our experience, there's also a certain element of judgment that you need to make uh, where you can't just directly measure this one is 100% objectively better. You know, uh, um, a model that has uh, more false positives, but also more false negatives, or sorry, more, more true positives, but also more false negatives, like might be worse than a different mix of, of issues that you're facing. Uh, you might have to make a call where, you know, a, a more aggressive model is worse than a more conservative model, even though the conservative model hurts you on some aspect of your performance. Maybe it's slower picking but fewer mistakes or maybe it's faster picking but more mistakes made uh so we we sort of do a traditional you know classic we we measure our our scores based on golden data sets that we've sort of hand labeled ourselves um but we also have to make some judgment calls about what we really want uh in our performance versus what the conditions are in the field and, and what we're seeing on the farms do you need to communicate the success of your machine learning models and how well they're performing with uh, with customers or with, with investors at all? That's a really good question. Actually, for, for our use case, it's not really important what an individual model uh, is performing like. You know, we kind of roll all of our evaluation of success to metrics that the customer would measure for their own pickers. Uh, so, for example, the, the metric that we think about the most on this is quality, 
quality is what percent of the time are you picking the right berry versus an incorrect berry, you know, and, and it could be any reason why it's not, not a good berry, but um, you know, our quality numbers need to be above 90% where, you know, out of a hundred berries picked uh, no more than 10 should be mistakes. Uh, and the reason that it's 90 is kind of just gut. No one really knows how good human pickers are. I think some pickers are, probably close to 98, 99% accurate, but some are probably close to 90 or even below. And uh, robots sort of in the 95% range are almost certainly better than most people uh, at picking. So that's the thing that we measure the most. And then we break that down into different types of quality errors from a grower perspective. You know, is it a green berry that we accidentally picked? Is it a ripening berry that we shouldn't have picked? And so on. Uh, and some of those things are directly relevant to machine learning, but some of those things are not. Um, and so when we measure from a customer point of view or from an investor point of view, uh, we don't actually really share the machine learning evaluations. Uh, the only place that, that sort of we have a direct measurement of the machine learning evaluation where we're not doing imaging based machine learning, but actually just sort of deep statistical approaches is in the forecasting. In forecasting, you know, the output of the model, uh, some of those can be, um, sort of effectively shared, but you always have to do some translation. You want to speak in the language of the customer uh, and not necessarily in the language of the industry. So uh, we try to convert whatever model results uh, are spit out into language that the customer sort of intuitively understands. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Is there any advice you could offer to other founders of AI-powered startups? Yeah, I would maybe just reinforce things that we've already talked about. Um, I think it's really important to start with the customer problem and to start with the customer problem as an economic proposition. So if you're trying to start a business and you want to have customers, then you're solving a, a, an economic problem for those customers. And what is that problem and how much value is at stake? How much risk to that value is at stake? What is your, AI, ML doing for that customer and how does it make them better off value-wise, like dollars and cents-wise uh, than before? If you can start there, then, then you're already ahead of a lot of projects. Uh, and then the next step is, okay, well, from that economic proposition, what is the operational problem that solves that or directly causes that economics problem? And the operational context is in the customer's mind, not in your engineering approach mind. So, you know, I have a problem. I need to get as many healthy berries to my customer as possible. I am a farmer. My customer is a supermarket. And I have to do all that within, you know, five hours uh, in a given day. And a berry ripens over a month. And, you know, here's all the different operational constraints I face. That's, that for us was the most important thing to understand is how do you actually run our customer's business from there, we could easily figure out, not easily figure out, but we could figure out over time how to slot technology into that problem and what technology can solve and what technology really cannot solve. Uh, it's it's kind of frustrating from the outside seeing the, the diversity of projects out there which are trying to solve a problem that is not there. We certainly hear that from our customers who have been frustrated with startups over, over the years trying to solve problems that aren't really problems they face. Um, so for anyone who's trying to start a business in this, I would say definitely start with the problem, the economic problem, and then the operational problem. And from there, figure out, okay, which of the tools in my toolkit 
um, with ML, with AI, can I apply to this problem and help them create value or, or reduce the risk of value loss? That's really helpful. And finally, where do you see the impact of Tortuga in three to five years? Yeah, I mean, we are very ambitious, uh, but we're also humble in the face of the challenge of the problem. I think, you know, in our wildest dreams in three to five years, uh, Tortuga robots have significantly shifted the way that uh, fruit is produced. Uh, you know, there are already very large discussions happening in the farming community around what type of farming um, should be used in order to, for example, deal with climate change, to deal with drought, to deal with chemical regulation, to deal with uh, sort of a, a lowering of fruit quality and an increase an increasing of fruit, uh, fruit waste, uh, challenging labor environments. I mean, there's all these challenges that farmers face and a, a well-placed robot can actually solve a lot or help solve a lot of these problems. So I think in three to five years, if we're a big part of that conversation, wow, robots are really finally working. It's been 20 years we wanted them, but they're finally working now. How does the industry change because of that? How do supermarkets change their buying patterns? How do we provide data to them to um, reduce the, the waste in buying, the waste in you know, post-purchase throwing out of berries from the supermarket or from your fridge? You know, how do we potentially put a QR code on, on, uh, on berry containers so that when you or I buy a pound of berries in the store, we can scan the QR code and watch a video of those berries being picked? and understand where they came from and how they came from and all the data that goes into that and uh, all the all the really exciting sort of AI related things you can do with that after the fact. That's why I hope that we're on the path towards in, in three to five years. Um, you know, we currently have 150 robots uh, built with about 110 in the field. Uh, by the end of the year, we'll have all of those in the field. In three to five years, I would love to say we would have, you know, thousands and thousands of robots deployed around the world helping farmers succeed. Uh, and trying to make a food system that's more resilient and more successful. I think that's that's really what we're aiming for. And obviously, it's a huge vision and, and a lot of challenges ahead. So we really hope we can get there. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see if we can do it that fast. Yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck with all those ambitious plans. And I, I know that your your team is doing great work with computer vision, machine learning, and robotics for farming. Um, I expect the insights you've shared will be valuable to other machine learning companies. Uh, where can people find out more about you online? Yeah, our website is easy. It's tortuga.ag or uh, more traditionally, tortugaagtech.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, on YouTube. Uh, not a whole lot of uh, things there except for exciting videos of robots picking fruit. Um, but yeah, uh, eager to have folks reach out if they'd like to chat. And, and again, thank you so much for, for having me on your uh, podcast. I did watch some of those YouTube videos of the, of the robots picking fruit and they are pretty cool. So I, they are <laughs> worth, worth checking out and I'll, I'll link to your website in the show notes. Thank you, Eric, for joining me today. Thanks, Heather. It was really fun. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI.